Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. Hopefully you are uh, enjoying a nice sunny day today like I am. A perfect day for Outshine Pop Schools. Uh, not the sponsor of the Indie Cornrows Podcast, but maybe someday. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, colleague, and friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing well today. Today, on this podcast, just to show that we give the people what they want, we had a request for what to talk about, Mark. With only two games left in the season. So just just to read the request from longtime listener Craig Lindemann, just for the sake of being able to enjoy basketball for the next week, can you guys do a scouting preview of the highly likely Cavs-Hawks playing game, which has major implications for the Pacers? And to that, I contacted Mark. Mark was like, yeah, let's do this. So that's what we're going to do today. And just to lay out why this impacts the Pacers for people who are listening and may not know, when the Pacers traded Karis LeVert to Cleveland uh, during the first week of February, the Cavs were fourth in the Eastern Conference, looked solidly like they were going to be a playoff team. We'll get into some of what's transpired for them during this stretch headed into the playoffs, but they are now locked into the play-in tournament. And if you're in the play-in tournament, well, just to back up a little bit, in exchange for Karis, they got... Cleveland's first round pick, um, a second round pick versus via Houston, which is effectively a first round pick. And then obviously Ricky Rubio's expiring deal as well. But the first round pick from Cleveland is lottery protected. So if Cleveland does not make the playoffs out of the play in tournament, then the pick is not going to convey to the Pacers. It would go on to next year. And then if Cleveland does not make the playoffs again, because it is also protected one through 14 next year, then the pick's going to instead convey as a 2025 second round pick from the Cavs and a 2026 second round pick from the Lakers. And this information comes from real GM. So um, in essence, if the Pacers want to have that pick from this year's draft class, it's going to be a mid-tier pick, but they need Cleveland to make the playoffs. So the Pacers do have a rooting interest, even though they aren't going to be in the playoffs. Yeah. And I think it's, it's important too, because especially with, you know, as we've talked about with, um, how essential this offseason is for the team. I mean, you, obviously, we don't know for sure until how things go next year. But I, I would, I would go out on a limb and say that it's better if they do get the pick this year, uh, just because I think it, in an offseason where they really need as much flexibility as possible, in my opinion, um, having another near lottery pick would be pretty good for that in terms of either building up the the young core. Um, or you know, op, are giving you options to to make more margin moves. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it goes down to, and I'll leave that to the draft intelligence. You know, whether this year's draft class is stronger or weaker than next year's. But I do agree. My my overall thought process is probably that after the year that the Pacers just had, they probably want to have some tangible um, things to hang their hats on headed into next year, which then they would have players from those picks. I did want to get your your input. How do you think Cleveland perceives this situation? Do you think they would rather have that pick convey this year? Or do you think that with the way that their season's gone, they would rather have that draft selection themselves? That's a good question. I think, like, honestly, if I'm Cleveland, like, this is, uh, I mean, 
I, I know you watched them quite a bit too this year uh, because they, I mean, they've been one of my favorite teams to watch and seeing the way that they've been impacted by injuries has sucked compared to where they were earlier in the year. Um, and we'll get into that more, but um, I think I'm in the stage of like, this is a team to me where I, I don't want to say that they got ahead of themselves coming out and playing at the four seed. They very much so earned their way there and were playing really well. But I also do think like the last two months have really shown some of the cracks that there are in the roster um, so the idea of them getting a lottery pick this year, or just, you know, having a, another, um, another first round selection this year would be pretty enticing to me in terms of filling out the rotation. Um, obviously, you know, things can happen in, in free agency still too, but like, this is a really young team and they are on, you know, they're, they're, this is their kind of first foray into figuring out who they are. And, um, so I do think if, if I'm the Cavs, like I'd be pretty okay if the, if the pick stayed this year. Yeah, it's interesting looking at it from their perspective because they clearly aren't playing their best basketball right now for several Mm -hmm. reasons. But I also wonder if they just value getting playoff experience for Darius Garland and Evan Mobley and Jared Allen together, as well as the idea that if those pick protections roll into next year, then they don't have quite as much flexibility to move other picks or make a swing if they want to. Like some of me part of me wonders if they would rather have it convey, even though what this season has been for them. But um, aside from that, if we want to look ahead to what the seating is, when we were asked this, as I read from that question, they wanted us to preview Hawks Cavs and it did look like Hawks Cavs might be a matchup. So that's what the two of us prepared for headed into this. But as we enter into tomorrow night's games, which the nets will play the Cleveland Cavaliers tomorrow night and a big game for seating. Um, it's entirely possible that the Nets, Hawks, and the Cavs could finish with um, in a tie. And if that happens, then the tiebreaker will go to Brooklyn as the number seven seed. The Hawks will be number eight, and the Cavs would fall into the 9-10 game. But there's still scenarios. I mean, Brooklyn con- controls their own destiny for the seven seed. Um, Atlanta, there's still scenarios where they could still move up to seven, depending upon how that game goes between Cleveland and Brooklyn and and because if you look at Atlanta, they still have Miami and Houston left. Miami's probably going to have the number one seed wrapped up. So it's it's possible that they could win out. And if they went out and Cleveland and Brooklyn split their last two pair of games, they could still move into seventh. So this is still very much fluid, I guess, would be my main point without getting into the nitty gritty of all the different ways that could go. But I do think that it's fairly probable that even if Cleveland and Brooklyn finish in the 7-8, that it's still possible that the Cavs will, you know, might lose that game and play Atlanta as the winner of the 9-10. So, or that if Brooklyn and Atlanta play each other in the 7-8 and Cleveland plays the Hornets, it's possible that Cleveland could play Atlanta as the loser of the 7-8 and they themselves as the winner of the 9-10. And I just think this is a pretty interesting matchup overall. So, um, I don't know if we want to give a little bit of an overview about how Cleveland got to this place. Um, since they traded for Karis Levert, I believe they've gone 11 and 16, which by comparison to the Eastern Conference, the only teams that have been that bad or worse are the ones that are currently at the bottom being the Pacers, Orlando, Detroit, and Washington. Um, they've had a lot of injuries. Dean Wade tore his meniscus. Jared Allen has the finger injury. Evan Mobley here recently has been out with um, an ankle and then Karis missed a few weeks with a foot injury himself. So what have you been seeing from Cleveland that's led them to go on this slide and get into the play in tournament? I mean, I think Jarrett going out was kind of the first straw in that. Um, 
with the like and this I think some people use it unfairly in the rookie of the year race to you know downplay Evan Mobley's impacts I've already seen that a bunch this year but um like so much of what they do is built upon being able to play three guys with real size like having Lowry Evan and Jared out there that's three guys who are around seven feet with a real wingspan and uh as much as like I think Lowry's actually had a pretty nice season relative to what I expected coming in. Um, you just have three guys who are all skilled, who can all move the ball, um, who can take some semblance of, of self-created shot or, you know, uh, uh, you know, make you punish you for, for giving them space, which is like what makes them different for me than just playing, you know, playing three seven footers for the hell of it. Like it's, it's with purpose. Um, and when they lose one of those guys, they really struggle. Um, and I think, you know, with, with missing Jarrett fully, uh, like they, they've been able to cobble together if, if like, you know, like Evan missed some time with an elbow injury earlier this year and they looked fine, um, during that stretch. And there were, there were other times when, when, uh, Jarrett or Lowry missed games, but, um, when you make it a full, like, okay, well, this guy's going to be out for weeks and we have to figure it out. Uh, it's definitely been, been difficult for them, especially considering how much they play zone, like. They play. They played three two zone. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they played three two zone a lot earlier this year, um, with you know Mobley out at the top of the key, uh, just doing all of his craziness with being able to cover ground from rim to to the top of the key. Um, so I think that is a big part with just the precipitous drop off in in their defense because they're just looking in since March. I mean they are twenty second in defensive efficiency. They're still sixth on the year. Um, but that, that just goes to show how difficult the, you know, the post all-star break stretch has been for them. Yeah. And I think that there's a trickle down effect too. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Karis comes back from the foot injury. And I mean, we Pacer fans, people listening to this podcast know very well that when he runs pick and roll, he's very much somebody who sees the first option and not necessarily the way that help defenders are moving. So if you don't have Jared Allen out there, as your main screening option or Evan Mobley to also do that with Um, it makes things more difficult for him. And his play has been very much up and down. They eventually like Moses Brown and Ed Davis have been in and out of the rotation. I think Karras's production has been worse than the games where um, Moses hasn't played as much because he just doesn't have somebody to play pick and roll with. And then you can also see like, and I think JB Bickerstaff somewhat um, trying to narrow down and figure out who he can count on in a playoff rotation, because you know, Jetty Osmond has kind of been cut and moved. And I think some of that probably goes back to who has been um, unavailable for them as well, too. Cause it seems like sometimes he's just kind of like unfocused and kind of floating around. Whereas, you know, when the other established options are out there, his role is a lot more clear and you can kind of live with the ebbs and flows of what he does. And then it looked like they were leaning a little bit more on Dylan Windler as like a spot guy in those minutes, as well as Lamar Stevens and what, you know, Okoro has been shooting the ball better, but you know that you're going to get rebounds and some situational defense and stuff from Dylan Windler that you're not going to get from Jetty Osmond. So um, just kind of the trickle down that it's led to the roster, not having quite the same success as they were having early on in the season. But if we do want to look um, ahead, their starting lineup, I'm assuming, that they would continue to play or will play Karras off the bench if everyone does return and is healthy. So they would be looking at Garland, Decoro, and the three seven-footers being Markin and um, Mobley and Allen. 
that lineup, if I have the number in front of me, has outscored opponents by, I believe, 11 points, 11.2 points per 100 possessions in 225 minutes played. That's not a lot of minutes, but I think that's around like top seven in the league amongst five man groupings. And then if we look ahead to this matchup, though, that starting five has never played a minute against the Atlanta Hawks. Um, these four games are pretty difficult to parse between these two, two teams because of that. Um, if you go back to October, Ricky Rubio and Colin Sexton were the starters because Garland was out. Then in December, it was Pango, Sinecoro, and Markinen and Mobley and Allen. And then in February, um, Dean Wade was starting in place of Markinen. And now here in March, because they've just had so many people out, um, there's no Mobley and Allen here recently when they kind of got waxed down in Atlanta. And then also thus on the Hawks side, I believe it was the December game when they were very severely impacted by COVID. So Lance was even in the roster for that game. So really kind of the only meaningful one was the matchup in February. If you can kind of envision that Dean Wade thought that he and Lori Markkinen operate exactly the same way within the offense. But in terms of them having four of their starters available and up against mostly who Atlanta will be playing, because I don't know exactly what John Collins' status is going to be, but John Collins didn't play in that game. So if he remains out, then it, it was a little bit more telling. But um, just when they have Markkinen, Mobley, and Allen available, they've been outscored by Atlanta by 3.9 points per 100 possessions across that series. So. Um, What's your overall thoughts of that as a starting lineup and where you would see Cleveland's rotation kind of shaking out? Like if that is their five, are they going to play eight or nine deep? And who do you think would be those extra three to four players? Yeah. I mean, I think Karras is for sure coming off the bench, which first of all, I mean, that is one of the, I mean, it's not going to matter for Pacers fans, but like one of the things that I'm most fascinated to see how that works out next year, because I mean, as we know, like, I don't really think he was, super enthralled about the idea of coming off the bench anywhere. So um, interesting. Uh, so yeah, he's, he's the sixth man for sure. Uh, I think Chetty, they almost have to play for lineup versatility. And I think like, like you mentioned, like he looks a lot better in a dumbed down role. Um, but like when he has to do a lot on the ball, it is erratic. Like he is, he is very Lance Stevenson esque in some ways um, is the best way for me to put it. Um I do think like it, it probably depends on on the game, but I think Lamar Stevens would play too because they really seem to like leaning into what he can do defensively. Um, but I think you also start to see some of the issues of like where is the rest of the guard play? Like it's pretty much Darius and and Karras. And like Isaac can do some things on ball, but like every ball screen is going to be an automatic under, which is, has led to them doing less with him on the ball this year um, as the season's gone on. Um, Rondo has been i mean honestly what i expected i didn't not to not to be slanderous but like i mean this was his 15th year in the league he has he can do some floor general things and, and organize the offense but um i'd imagine he's probably the ninth man um and especially with dean wade out because dean wade probably would have been the seventh man for them but um i also did not mention kevin love kevin love would be sixth or seventh man off the bench so probably not not lamar stevenson it would just depend on the matchup yeah, it seems like they've been playing more of Rondo and Levert together in part mm -hmm. because I think that they're trying to, I want to say rein in Karras, but it allows Karras to do more of what, you know, we all know Karras wants to do, which is, like I said, be able to just run pick and roll actions and not have to be worrying about actually initiating and setting up the initial amount of the offense. So um, I think some of it will be situational, depends how things go. But um, I think the next place we can kind of head here is, 
Atlanta is, is an elite, elite offense. They're top yeah. two in half court and, or, I mean, top three in both half court and transition offense. So um, they've won this, the regular season series 3-1 over Cleveland. And I think the biggest question that we can kind of look at is whether you trust their offense more than Cleveland's defense. And also, I think it all pretty much, I mean, it kind of what the story was for Atlanta last year in the playoffs, I think still is going to apply to this particular matchup. Can Trey Young punish the Cavs more than the Cavs can punish him? Yeah, um, I think I lean more into into what you just said. Like, I think it's going to be, like it, it, it'll be Trey in my opinion. Like I, I think the Hawks would win this game personally, as much as I, um, I want it to be the Cavs because I, they've just been one of my favorite teams to follow this year. But, um, it's you know just bringing it, chalking it up strictly to momentum is unfair. But for a team that has really been in flux for the last month and a half now, um, I do think it's asking a lot for, you know, I don't even know if Mobley's going to play a regular season game before the playoffs. Um. Like he's still un, un, undetermined on whether or not he's going to be back. Um, I don't know entirely what's going to be up with Jarrett. I mean, like it's been rumbled that he'll be back for the playoffs, but I don't know. Um, and even then, if you have all of them back, like, okay, yes, they have the encore chemistry from this year, of course. But I do think like I would feel a lot more comfortable about them if they had a week or two to play together and, you know, get back in the groove of things and find their defense again and, and get back into their regular rotations. Cause even then, like they're, Rotations have been thrown completely out of whack. Um, so it's just like in a vacuum, it looks like it would be more simple, but I, I think it, it probably draws out a little bit more complex. And the the Hawks have played honestly pretty well over the last month. I think they lost the they lost the Raptors the other night and they beat Washington last night. Um, so I think they're 12 and seven in March, which doesn't sound like anything crazy, but compared to what they were doing earlier this year, it's nice. Um, oh yeah. 13 and seven in March, my bad. Um, and like you mentioned that, that offense is just so good. Um, again, like everything you crack down to variation with, with shooting in a single game, but Trey will be the best player in that game. And he's capable of taking apart a defense that is kind of struggling right now. So, um, I would probably bet on them to win that game. I think what's interesting here is like, let's just pause and really reflect for a moment that what if I had told you two years ago that Nate McMillan is coaching an elite half court offense and transition offense with a team with a very messy defense. Yeah. Uh, I would not have believed you whatsoever. (laughs) It's just kind of wild. I mean, it's, it's even just this conversation in general. What if I had told you last summer that Karis Levert could end up having a pretty uh, important impact on the overall um, draft stock of the Pacers this summer, but it would have nothing to do with him playing for the Pacers. Uh, um, yeah, it would have taken me very by surprise. But um, back back to this actual matchup. Um, yeah, I think that that's why I brought up the game that the two of them played against each other in February. I don't know if you had a chance to see that game when it was live or, or since then. Mm-hmm. But um, if you look at how the matchup shake, shook out, it was very clear that, and I don't know what they would do if it's if it's marking it in place of Dean Wade. I suspect it would be a little bit different based on what I saw in the other three games. But Trey Young was defending Dean Wade for almost the entirety of that game. And then when Wade was off the floor, he would defend Okoro. And then if both of them were off the floor, he was defending Rondo, which actually of the three was kind of the most difficult matchup because it actually forced him to have to defend through screens and other actions. Whereas for the 
most of the other time he was kind of just chilling out on on Dean Wade or Okoro. So to me, that's kind of an interesting juxtaposition between the two teams because when you watched it, Trey Young is such that like to go on a little bit of a tangent, like there's really not a good way to defend him anymore. I mean, I think that people of the Pacers know since they just played Atlanta, like the Pacers defense is obviously nowhere near what Cleveland's has been this season, but there is a reason why they were resorting to face guarding and half court trapping because they they just had no answer. If you drop, you're going to fall victim to the floater or the alley-oop. So there's times in, in these games that I watched where they had Jared Allen and drop, and then you're just getting, you know, ethered on pull-up threes. If you then try to blitz them, which they've also done in some games, then he's getting the ball out quickly and, and the Hawks are picking you apart in four on three situations, especially if they're hot from the perimeter. I think that kind of the best overall option is the switch everything game plan. Um, And that kind of like what we've seen from Tyrese when they played Cleveland, like if he got Jared Allen out on a switch or Evan Mobley out on a switch, that gummed up their offense a little bit, not because he was necessarily hunting it, but because he just couldn't do anything with their length. The problem being though is, is unlike, you know, the Pacers kind of running a lot of one, five, one, four screening actions in these games here, with Tyrese where they're typically getting those screens from either, you know, Goga or Jalen or Isaiah Jackson, Trey young very much hunts the mismatch. So, you know, he he's calling up Dean Wade into those screens. He's going to call Kevin love up into those screens over and over and over again. Um, Even in this most recent game, when they played in March, one of their favorite, one of Nate McMillan's favorite little pet things that I noticed across the three games that I watched is they're going to have, the forward screen tray screen tray young for the ball and not in a double drag situation, like in two literal separate screenings to force two separate switches. So like in the most recent game, Karis Levert, weirdly, they were playing a very small lineup. So he was kind of at the four. So they bring up his guy. So Karis switches onto the ball. Then they bring up Laurie Markkinen's guy. So now you have Karis and Laurie Markkinen involved in pick and roll action. And that's just going to be no offense, but dead on arrival. Like there's not going to be anything those two can do when Laurie Markkinen then has to pay more attention to the ball as getting a Coro off. So Cleveland's doing a lot of switching and a Coro is his primary matchup, but I suspect that if this five man lineups out there that Laurie Markkinen is going to be defending in a lot of screening situations because that's what happened to Dean Wade. So by contrast at the other end, and, and you might differ with me here, Atlanta's defense as a whole is, is pretty leaky and not great. So yeah. it felt very much by contrast, whereas Trey Young was, you know, finding the right mismatch and hunting the more vulnerable defender on his own, that Darius Garland was more just running Cleveland's overall offense and whatever weak spots that were found out of that is, I mean, he had a very good scoring outing. I think he had 30 points in that game in, in February. But, like, they're not going to marginalize Jarrett Allen and Evan Mobley to go, you know, let's bring up Trey Young into this pick-and-roll action. And I kind of want to get your impact, your input on that. Like, which, what is your overall thought on that? Do you Are you somebody at the NBA in this point in time where you think it is better to have, you know, I don't even necessarily want to call it heliocentric, but a guard like Trey Young who is going to hunt and peck for those vulnerabilities? Or are you more along the lines of run the offense as it is and those vulnerabilities will kind of shake out to the top anyways? Like, I feel like this is kind of a, a touch point that a lot of people are getting more polarized on, whereas in years past, it would have most definitely sided through like, the LeBron lens of playoff basketball where you're really going to hunt those match, those mismatches. Well, it's really interesting to me because I've thought about this a lot, especially in talking about trade. Cause I, 
like, as you know, the awards voting and everything is so toxic and I hate it already. And I think Trey's just had such a good season. Like he will be on my all NBA team. Not that I have a vote, but I like doing it anyways. Um, and a lot of people will bring up the defense and yeah, his defense in isolation and uh, off the ball isn't, isn't very good, but I also just think like, kind of like you're mentioning too, like Trey is elite at, at pulling mismatches and just eviscerating a defense. But I also think like, and maybe this is, I, I, mean, I don't know if you agree with me, but I think it's a lot harder to actually just mismatch hunt than people tend to give it credit for. Um, like that, that came up a lot with the Knicks series last year. Like a lot of people were like, Oh, you know, they're just going to hunt Trey on the perimeter and find him. And like, they did a really good job of like similar that this is a massive pull, but like going back to you remember the Aaron holiday bubble game against the Lakers when the Lakers tried to hunt Aaron holiday the entire time. And they just did a really good job of jumping screens and making it very difficult to just isolate on Aaron holiday. Like it, it takes an incredibly good performance from your offense to, to beat a, a team that is locked in and engaged defensively. Um, and again, I guess you can bring up, you know, it is the Hawks, so that that's that might not be the case, but it is just it's not as easy to just be like, I'm gonna go find Trey Young and beat his ass on court. I agree with that. I mean, I would say that the one difference with the Lakers situation was is that the Pacers entered into the bubble as a team that they were basically really, yeah. didn't they didn't switch. I mean, they were a uh-huh. top six defense in that season. And Dan Burke's overall strategy was they were gonna hedge and recover with Aaron Holiday on those LeBron screens and Aaron battled. Like, no offense to Trey Young, and I'm not trying to be super derogatory, but if, like, pound for pound, Aaron Holiday is a better oh, defender yeah, than Trey Young. So, like, you got to have that overall mentality, and you have to be a team that's probably done that to some extent, because I do think it's easier to go from being a team that doesn't switch to then switching in the playoffs versus being a team that switches that then doesn't switch in the playoffs. Um, I mean, I think. I would land on the side of like what I just said, like it's very clear why the Cavs weren't going to do that as much because Jared Allen and Evan Mobley are two of your best players. If you start calling up for screens from, you know, like I said, to put Trey young into the action or calling for a core to come screen or whatever, then you're not involving two of your best guys and in your pick and roll options to get them touches at the rim or to finish in those types of situations. So at the other end of the floor, if Trey young's doing that, it kind of becomes a situation of it's not even just him finishing the matchup. Like in some of the plays that I watched, like, you know, Trey might get Dean Wade out on the perimeter. Then he attacks into that and it's putting Cleveland into rotation. And as good as Evan Mobley is at covering ground, he's still having to cover a bunch of ground. And then you, if you look at the other options that Atlanta has, who is he shrinking off of? Yeah, exactly. Like, like, there's just not a really good option. Like, is he coming off of Danilo Gallinari? Is he coming off of John Collins? Like, not that they're necessarily – not that John Collins is an elite, elite three-point shooter, but there's a lot – he has a lot more um, versatility of things that he can do on offense. So, um, the decision doesn't become quite as easy versus at the other end. There were times where once or twice – it didn't happen a lot – where Dean Wade did try to duck in at least from the corner against Trey Young and established position, but then Clint Capella is just coming off of Jared Allen and covering that up because, you know, you, you're not having – like they're not going to play five out and have him out there. So um, it, it makes it a little bit more difficult. But I do think that the benefit to doing some of that, and I agree with you, it can be harder. I mean, when the Knicks tried to do that, like let's just be honest. like did not work, yeah. What, what was Reggie Bullock really going to do though? Like, 
I mean, that's who Trey was defending in that series. How are you using him? I mean, and some of it is just screening technique as well. Like there's, there's definitely a technique to forcing a team to switch, even if they don't necessarily want to. And the Knicks weren't great at that in that series, but also like they were doing like Nate was doing some hedge and recover with Trey in that series. And then if Reggie can't really do anything off the dribble, you know, what are you going to do? But I think that the one benefit to hunting him is, is if you can't stop the Hawks overall offense, what you're doing on offense can at least drain some of Trey's energy on that end of the floor. So hopefully, you know, he's not quite as effective at the other end if he's having to account for more things. So um, I guess I would defer to you. What have you seen from a Coro or Lori Markinen this year where you're like, that's a way that the Cleveland Cavaliers could use them to at least force Trey Young to have to guard rather than just, you know, chilling out in the corner. Well, I do think with Okoro, what has helped is that he, um, and I wrote about this a little bit earlier this year, um, he went from like, he had a really awkward stage of like just trying to take every open shot afforded to him because like I mentioned earlier, like they really did try, especially after Colin Sexton went down, they tried to do a lot more of, you know, running some actions through Isaac and uh, like, again, like every team was just like, okay, we're just going to go on your ball screen. So he was taking some stuff off the dribble. Um, I think he had a couple of games taking like five to seven threes because he was just like, okay, I'm going to take every open one because I, as, as we've talked about, like sometimes you just have to, because that's how you're going to make the defense care, but he didn't hit it at a high enough to at a high enough rate for the defense to care. And um, so finding that balance has been really important for him. Um, what is uh been interesting is how he's like again you'll look at the the rebounding numbers and it's not anything insane he's averaging 1.1 offensive rebounds per game but he's been really good at knowing when to cut and how to cut and you know sneaking baseline opening himself up um even if like sometimes he will take himself out of an open corner three if if he's being helped off of weak side to to float in baseline and sneak in for a quick layup if if the ball comes to him or um you know the ball leaks out like i do uh it sounds cliche, but I think he just does enough of the grifty little things to to try and make it work. So, like, if Trey Young were to leak off of him or stay on him, like, I do think Isaac has enough of the um, the awareness and and the uh, ability to find little gaps and ways to impact the offense that I think he can make it work. But again, so much of it too is just like how everyone else is is playing and shooting because like he needs to be the fifth worst offensive player like you can't really have him be you know if he's if he's like your third or fourth best offensive player out there you can chalk that lineup up as being kind of out out for commission on offense yeah because in certain circumstances like what i said before like running your offense and the mismatch will you know still occur just not in the traditional like we're going to hunt this way is you know if if you're putting a coro in the weak side corner you're putting laurie marketing in the weak side corner and I don't know how much they would actually put Trey on Laurie Markkinen versus what they did with Dean Wade because of the height advantage is such. And then what Markkinen can do as a shooter is a little bit different than Dean Wade as well. But like if, if he's in the weak side corner in those situations and you're running screen and roll, then he is the tagger against Jared Allen. And there is benefit to that, obviously, because what's he going to do as a tagger against Jared Allen in the pick and roll? Like, absolutely. There's nothing he can do about that. And a lot of times he really wasn't even trying to do anything about it. Like if, if they didn't use other off ball stunts to impact Darius Garland's passing vision to prevent that pass from occurring, then it was going to be pretty easy points. So um, 
there's that, but it's not necessarily like, yes, that's a clear advantage for you. And there are other ways to, 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 like I said, to punish mismatches other than just, you know, hunting them on in the post or out on the perimeter, but it's not making Trey have to really do anything. Like it's not forcing him to expend any energy to just, like I said, stand there in the corner, whether he's going to go slide over and tag or not. And in Okoro's case, like, I agree with you. I think that he could probably be a sneaky face cutter in certain circumstances. If you're running stuff on the strong side, then he can get out and score, but it isn't even so much necessarily about his scoring because I'm guessing that Nate McMillan's going to be like, you know, they have two bigs on the floor or three bigs technically on the floor and two of them aren't really shooting options. So we're going to shrink this space as much as possible and try to take away some of that action is like, for me, I think that he still has to be involved more as the screener. Like, I mean, Toronto was doing this some when I watched a little bit of that Hawks Toronto game the other night, when I was flipping between games that, you know, using Trey Young's guy to set a pistol screen for Scotty Barnes. Like, it's not necessarily that it has to be Okoro getting the ball, but if you're bringing him up and screening, a lot of times the Hawks will use Trey Young and hedge and, and hedge and recover situations. So he's at least having to do something. There's at least energy being expended there versus, like I said, just, just standing there and, and whether he's going to be a help defender or not. So, yeah. Um, and that's a sorry not to interrupt, but that's a great point. Like, I, I think the best, like you're, like you're hitting at, I think the best way to attack Trey is to involve him in the screening actions. Um, and the Cavs do like to run a lot of pistol exchanges uh, with, you know, either if Darius is bringing the ball up in transition or if sometimes Isaac will too, um, they will run more pistol ex- exchanges. Um, and one also just a, a quick appreciation for Darius. Like he, he, obviously he and Tyrese are very different players, but they do a lot of the same stuff and wanting to push the ball in transition and get out. And um, like, even like there are like small moments where um, uh, like Darius will like, toss the ball up to Evan Mobley in the slot and set a screen for him and prop to, which is just like, it's so cool. Like, I love that kind of stuff. Um, I know it was very random, but just was thinking about that. But um, I do think they they work in some of that stuff. So I'm, I agree. I'm really interested to see how they do that. And then also, too, at the other end of the floor, like for Trey, what can the Cavs do to prevent him from getting the switches that he wants? Like, I mean, for the most part, like I said, they will put – a Coro on Trey Young as the primary defender because that's what they've done in the other four games that they've played this season. But they're doing a lot of switching. So I think that sometimes there is something to be said. And I heard Jeff Van Gundy say this, and I don't necessarily always agree with all of his basketball opinions, but he obviously knows a ton about the game. That sometimes I think the NBA has trended so far to switching that sometimes it just needs yeah. to be your best against their best. Like it, And again, like there's more that goes into this because there are times where teams switch where they may not have really wanted to switch, but because of the way that the screen set, it it led them to have to do that. But um, so far through the four games, they've switched. And then that's why I said like Trey Young has hunted Dean Wade. He's hunted Kevin Love, which they do. Like I said, when Kevin Love's at the four, they'll do hedge and recover. They don't usually um, switch him onto the ball. But I suspect they'll also he'll be hunting Lori Markin in a ton at the beginning of those games. So um, they're pretty clever with the order of the screens that they do so that they get m- multiple switches that they want and then go into pick and roll. So I think that there was a few spots where if it was a playoff game and you are really headed into that and preparing, there's ways that they probably could have pre-switched on some of the screen approach to just kick Lori Markin out of those actions. Um 
that's tough depending upon what the overall floor geometry is and whether you can get up and do that in time. But I do want to touch on what you said before, because the one sure way to make sure that at least Evan Mobley Mobley's length is on the ball is to go into the three, two zone. Um, Cause then he's at least going to be up top. And, and it's curious because I looked up the numbers on this and I thought, because in the games where I've watched Cleveland do it, it feels like their zone's pretty effective, but Synergy has them at 18th in overall zone efficiency, which there's no way to filter it for when their best players are on the floor and doing this. There's other times where they run 3-2 zone where Evan Mobley might not necessarily be playing or Jaron Allen might not necessarily be out there. So I suspect it's a little bit better than what that number suggests that it is, especially given what absences they've had. Um, early in the season, I don't think a lot of teams were expecting that the Cleveland Cavaliers were going to play zone with three bigs on the floor. So I looked into the individual games and when they played in October, the Hawks went scoreless on six of eight possessions when the Cavs played zone. Um, In December, they didn't play any zone. In February, it seemed like they figured it out a little bit better in terms of just what overall actions they ran, just getting it to the middle of the floor and then bringing Capella over really quickly diving in from the corner to create a numbers advantage worked a couple times and they scored on five of eight zone positions. And then here in March, it was just kind of so much of a smoke show. They didn't really need to get into that, but there were a couple times late in the game in February where they turned it over where Evan Mobley was just absolutely hounding Trey young up top, which was quite thrilling to watch actually, and turned him over and got to the other end. So, um, Overall, Atlanta's fared pretty well against zone because they do have the shooters and they have been taking and making more threes since they ended up making the starting lineup change where they put Herder into the starting lineup and moved um, Bogdanovich to the bench. And I'm not saying that that's the reason they're making more threes. It's just that was kind of a turning point where their offense changed a little bit in both units with what they were doing. So um, I think that the zone is something that they can throw out there that will at least give them a chance to throw off the rhythm a little bit more. And again, you're preventing them from getting what mismatch they want when you're sitting back in the zone. I shouldn't even say sitting back because they don't really sit back in the zone when Evan Mobley's up on top of it. Yeah, no, they're very aggressive in it, which is what I what I what makes it so effective, I feel like. Uh, and like you mentioned, I think there was a real shock factor to it earlier in the year, especially because of like, I mean, I think people knew that Mobley was going to be a, a really, really damn good rim protector coming in. But I think the ground coverage really shocked some people. Um, like, I mean, there even that game you're talking about against the Hawks earlier in the year, like there's a clip where it there, I mean, they're playing the three, two zone and Evan is rotates, uh, you know, he like comes out from, uh, he comes out from the paint to the top of the key and then uh rides out of drive back to the rim and then comes out and blocks a shot at the top of the key. And it's like, I just, there are like five players who can effectively do that in the NBA. So it makes it pretty, pretty damn impactful and special too. Um, so yes, I'm there with you. And I think um, the zone is definitely dependent on like uh, who is out there. Like you're mentioning, I think it, it loses a lot of luster when Kevin Love is out there not to be, I mean, he's had a really good season, but again, like, okay. When you, when you're, when you're picking hairs, like, yeah, Kevin Love is not the defender that Evan Mobley is. I think it's very fair to say that. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point with the shock factor of it all, because it's kind of like, and, and again, these two defenses are not of the same caliber. But when the Pacers went to the half-court trapping in the second half of not this last game they played, but the prior one, when 
Trey had what, like 33 points at halftime. It looked like he was going to drop 50 on them. They came out and adjusted and were really aggressive and face guarded him and, and forced other people to try to beat them, which they did still beat them. But you could see that it made an impact in how they were getting into offense and what they were running. Now, when the Pacers played the next game, they pretty much came out of the, out in that from the tip. And Atlanta was shooting the ball very well to start that game. And it, it didn't have the same effect because it was evident that Atlanta was like, hey, you have court trapped us and three quarter court trapped us last game and we're prepared for this. And it's not going to, it's not going to have the same overall impact. So I would think that Nate McMillan headed into a play in tournament game would be very prepared that the, Cle- that the Cavs would maybe miss m- mix some of that in. I will say that they're pretty good at disguising it though. Yeah. Like before they actually launch into it, it looks like they are setting up in a man. And then all of a sudden Evan Mobley comes off of his guy and goes up to the top. So, um, it is up to the players to kind of react to it in the moment, even if they do have perhaps more zone offense sets built in and prepared for that. At the other end of the floor, I was also kind of surprised if we're going to continue talking about zone, um, how much across the four games that when Clint Capella comes out, they, they drop into a two, three um, because their defense is what it is to me. Like when Cleveland's doing it, it's more of an attack mechanism. And when Atlanta's doing it, it's clearly more of like, we need to, cover up for what we're giving up when Clint Capella isn't out here, but unless like, unless what you said, when you, when we tip this off, like unless they're going to have multiple shooters out on the floor, unless Jetty's going to be part of your rotation. It's not like the Cavs have a lot of people that are going to shoot you out of that in certain lineups. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think a lot of what's been difficult for the Cavs and their offense, like there have been moments this year where I think the Cavs offenses look better than it, it is on paper, but a lot of that is, again, the shock factor. And that's part of why I was so interested to see this team in the playoffs. Like having three seven-footers who can all pass the ball to one another is like, what the hell sometimes? You know, like one of those guys is going to have uh, – at least one of those guys will have a high advantage on their matchup. So it's just like, you know, you get some really funky stuff with that. But like you mentioned, a lot of the zone this year has either been attacking through post-ups or Darius trying to, to get himself – an opportunity um and not that they, i mean like it it's Darius is a good player but the the offense just is what it is and um especially with you know the lineups that they could use to attack zone can get attacked on the other end pretty easily so it's just like you know um i am interested to see what that looks like for sure i i do think like um especially if collins doesn't play um yeah. Like the the Hawks are not a great rebounding team yep. right now. That's why I was so just I, getting ready to yeah. bring up. Yeah, because that's one of the things I'm interested in. Like Clint Capella, obviously a very good rebounder. He's had kind of an up and down year, but he's looked a lot better recently, mobility wise and and on the defensive end. But okay, if you have, and that's another part of where it comes in. Like if you have Mobley and Allen, I do think it makes life a lot harder on the interior um, because I think I mean DeAndre Hunter has been playing the four a lot for them in their starting lineup and. They've even um, been playing TLC some at the four. Which Jesus Christ, that is a that is a ride. Um, he's a very very erratic player. Um, but exactly, I mean, like they really don't have a lot of size outside of Winkapol. Or I should say, they don't really have a lot of functional size. Like they have a lot of guys with length and and whatnot. But like the, DeAndre Hunter does not play like he's six six eight in my opinion. Like he's much more of a wing than a forward. Um, same thing with like Gallo is he, I mean, Gallo can box guys out and find a body, but he's really not like a rebounder like that. And, um, so I do think that is a a way that the Cavs can maybe find some and and manufacture more possessions on the interior, which would be interesting to track. But even then it's still like, 
I don't know. It, it, there are just a lot of quandaries coming up here for the Cavs offense. No, I mean, that was the next point that I had listed in my notes because, I mean, that showed up even in the game against Toronto the other night. Atlanta really struggled giving up second-chance opportunities to the Raptors. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that game in February, which I think is the best uh, potential matchup to look at for what this would be like, I believe that the Cavs had 14 offensive rebounds and scored 25 second chance points. It still ended up being a loss, but you could see that that was a pressure point that they could potentially bear down on in that series. If, especially if Collins isn't available out there, because I mean, none of their wings are necessarily plus rebounders. You're not getting, you know, a lot of activity there from Bogdanovich and Wright, And in addition to what we already said about Hunter and TLC. So, um, yeah, I think that getting and seeking out the second possessions is going to be important, but then, you know, you, you probably feel confident sending the bigs to the glass, but then you also have to manage the fact that Atlanta is a very good transition team yep. and, and whether and how you're going to get back, get back if you do that. Because I believe that the Hawks had quite a number of fast break points in that game, even though um, they got crunched on the glass. So um, all very interesting. I mean, I think I lean towards you. We, we obviously didn't touch on how these two teams match up being um, Cleveland and Brooklyn, if that's a matchup, but did you happen to see the Nets Knicks game last night? Uh, I was recording a podcast right, so I didn't get to watch. I saw how it started, um, and then I, I I ended up seeing the final score. Um, I have seen a lot of Brooklyn recently, just not that game. Uh, what did you think? What what are you what are you drawing away from this one? Yeah, I mean, I think that the overall takeaway there. Well, first of all, Patty Mills found his his shooting stroke, which is going to be important headed into mm-hmm. the playoffs because he has been shooting like thirty three percent, I think, since um, I forget how many weeks long that has stretched. But he's been very icy from three of late, and he hit a number of threes. But yeah, I mean, the, the Knicks jumped out to I believe a seventeen or eighteen point lead, and then after halftime, RJ Barrett had a very rough second half. Um, very a lot of ton of tunnel vision driving to the basket when there was some fairly obvious passes, particularly to Obi Toppin in the corner that he didn't make. And I think the Knicks missed 12 or 13 free throws, which was clearly very costly, but their offense became what their offense always tends to become. Um, a bunch of Alec Burks post-ups against Kyrie Irving, and then they were trying to post up Obi Toppin against Kyrie Irving. And once they figured out that wasn't going to work with, uh, Henry Sims, particularly standing at the opposite block and really making the spacing that much worse. It became a bunch of pick and roll for Alec Burks at the top of the key that they were switching. And then just like a bunch of kamikaze drives while Brooklyn was hitting like every shot in sight. And then the other big adjustment was, which I think is how we can pull this back to Cleveland is that Steve Nash ended up playing Kevin Durant at the five. He took both bigs off the floor. They had started the game with Drummond and and Claxton playing some together. Then they had gone with Claxton. And by the end of it, they were just like, screw it. We're just going to play Kevin Durant at the five with a bunch of shooters. And they ended up shooting New York out of the gym. And not that New York is a playoff team, but in terms of, I'm trying to see what the regular season record was between Brooklyn Uh, and Cleveland here. It was one and two for for Cleveland. And the one game they did win was only Kyrie played and KD did not. Right, exactly. So um, I think that, you know, if you're going to come up with a matchup that was really going to test Cleveland, it's going to be a team like Brooklyn that can spread out the floor, especially if they think, I mean, in my opinion, Duran at the five, given what their defensive issues already are and the fact that it's like they can either play big and have a bunch of people that can get targeted on defense or they can play small and, you know, kind of the same situation. But yeah. the fact that Brooklyn can spread you out to that degree is going to be hard with, with two seven foot guys on the floor, even though we know how both of them can somewhat move on the perimeter. 
and just the fact that especially I mean I guess it would be more likely that Brooklyn would be the seven seed and Cleveland would be the eight especially if Cleveland loses this game on Friday but Brooklyn has been better than the league's best offense in road games this year scoring 116.4 points per 100 possession in road games which I mean I think we can pretty heavily tie back to the fact that that's when Kyrie Irving has been available more than it's something that's like oh they just play better on the road so um, another very potent offense that their defense would have to reckon with especially if they're um, I mean it doesn't matter anymore because Kyrie's going to play either way so it's 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 not looking particularly like an easy path for the Cleveland Cavaliers to get to the playoffs, I guess, is what I'm trying to verbalize here. Yeah, I mean, it, what's so difficult, too, is even, like, you can try and count on it. Well, you can't really count on it, but, like, okay, let's say Brooklyn just has a really cold shooting night. Well, even then, I mean, one of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving is going to, to shoot the lights out. I mean, as much as it the whole season has been frustrating with Kyrie. Like he's been really damn good when he does play. He has struggled a little bit recently um, and has looked fatigued at times, which I, I do find kind of funny. Um, but like, I mean, there's just, who, who do you match up with Kevin Durant? Like that you're going to ask Evan Mobley. I mean, I, I do imagine, like you said, I do think there would be some situational switching going on and they, they would just try and mix up coverages for sure. But at the same token, like, I mean, sometimes Kevin Durant is just, he's Kevin Durant. Like that, that, there isn't really anything you can do. And and what's been fun this year to watch, especially since the all-star break, his passing has been really fun. Like I, I think it's the best passing stretch I've seen in, in his career. Like the ball placement still isn't like, you know, otherworldly or anything. And he doesn't always see the pass right away. But I mean, he's been like, he he's been drawing double teams routinely and just kind of picking apart defenses. Well, absolutely shooting the lights off from every single spot of the floor. And, um, I just don't know how you, how you defend that. Like, I think you can, you can look at teams higher up like the Bucks and be like, okay, I can see, you know, some of these teams that have a lot of, a lot of length and, um, a lot of, cap- a lot of capable two-way players who can, who can provide you some, some stuff matchup wise and same thing with Boston and, and maybe Miami, but like when you're coming down to where the Cavs are at right now with the injuries they've had, I'm just kind of like, you have to hope for a really bad shooting night. And I don't know where else you go with that. Yeah, because, I mean, the Cavs defense, and I think we can point to a lot of it being injuries, but yeah. s- since they traded for Karras, and again, this isn't me saying, oh, this is because of Karras, though we do know what some of Karras's defensive issues are, their defense is ranked 25th in the league since January 6th when they traded for him. So um, they do have a lot of issues to iron out. Um, that's one of the benefits. What you just said is the benefit of the playing tournament. It's it's one game. You you show up, you play really well on that game. Your, your opponent has an off night. And obviously, I think all te- all four teams, I mean, I saw one Hawks writer pointed this out. They're like, you know, the benefit of the nine seed is you'd probably get to play Charlotte. And then if you win that game, you'd probably play Cleveland as the, as the loser of the 7-8 game with Brooklyn winning there. That looks like, you know, not a terrible path for Atlanta to get into the playoffs. And I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. And Cleveland would probably feel similarly. I'm guessing if we ranked power rank these opponents, well, let's just do that. If, if you're the Cleveland Cavaliers, who would you most want to play amongst Charlotte, Atlanta, and Brooklyn? Probably Charlotte, just because they're so they're they're so volatile on both ends. Like I just I I'm very I don't want to just say I'm out on this team because that seems unfair. Like their offense can be really good too, but um, like no, I can't. I, it would definitely be Charlotte last, and then Atlanta, and then Brooklyn. Yeah, see that that's how I think that 
that everybody would rank it other than Charlotte. I think that the other three teams, if they had their pick, would probably all pick the Hornets to play. Um, and their team has changed, but I will say that like when the Pacers played the Hornets in the play-in tournament last year, and that was a lot of shot variance, which goes back to what we were saying, like the Pacers came out and Doug McDermott was just absolutely firing away off of his chemistry with Sabonis. The Hornets were not shooting the ball well in that game. They tried to do a lot of I don't want to say gimmicky, but they were throwing a lot of different defensive coverages against the Pacers, kind of like what Nate Bjorken wanted to do that weren't all that well fleshed out. And the Pacers ended up just absolutely thrashing them. And that kind of painted my overall thought process on them a little bit, because I really do enjoy James Borrego's offense and some of the really um, cool things they do on that end of the floor. But we know what their defensive issues have been. But point being is, aside from that little tangent, that I think most people would pick Charlotte. But then if you're the nine seed, you're only getting that one game. So yeah. if if you're the reverse Charlotte and what the Pacers did to you happens, you're out. So I think that Cleveland still wants to get into 7-8 because at least you have two chances. You yeah. get to play Brooklyn. If you lose, then you get to play and probably Atlanta, but maybe Charlotte. So um, even if they do like their chances better in a 9-10 against Charlotte, you're still going to have to play one of the other two. So um I think that that pretty well covers Cleveland headed into the play-in tournament, unless you had anything else that you wanted to bring up. I know you covered them or watched them more than I did this season. Uh, no, honestly, I think that's really it on my end. Like I, I'm just hopeful that they're able to be at full strength for it. Um, it doesn't seem super likely, but I'm hopeful just because, you know, like you mentioned too, I think I would, I would almost change my answer from the beginning. Like, obviously it would be nice for them to have the pick and bay, but with how the season has gone, like to not end up making the playoffs would just be very bittersweet um, or bittersweet would be the wrong way to put it. it would just be very bitter taste after how the year has gone. Um, you know, so I, I wouldn't, I would personally wouldn't want to see that for them. And I, I hope that they do make the playoffs, but yeah, um, I, uh, I think that's really all I got to add. Yeah, I mean, from the Pacers perspective, you get to go in watch the play in tournament here next week and hope that the Pacers are going to get another extra pick or get the pick that they originally traded for. Cause you definitely don't want to take a chance. I mean, I don't know how Cleveland will play next year. If Colin Sexton, you know, is back on the team, if they're at full strength and healthy, if they would be a playoff team, but you definitely don't want that to turn into, you know, you traded Karras for two second rounders and Ricky Rubio's expiring contract. So um, definitely gives fans a rooting interest as they go in and watch that to be, in favor of the central division rival, the Cleveland Cavaliers coming out of the play in tournament and getting a playoff spot. Um, I don't know if we wanted to touch on any of the little news items that have been released about the Pacers in the last two days. Terry Taylor. Yes. On a standard contract, Dwayne Washington on a standard contract and two new Mad Ants on two way deals. Yeah. Um, I mean, Terry is the, is the real talking point here. I'm, I'm stoked for him. Um, well-deserved um i I'm, I'm just glad it finally happened before the season ended <laughs> so i uh yes I, I mean we could we could sing terry taylor's praises forever and ever but i was very excited about that i felt very bad for Kiefer sykes um yeah like that just sucks to see that happen i don't I'm, again i'm not trying to be unfair or rude but i honestly think lance probably could have gotten the axe before Kiefer. um it does seem like Lance thinks his days are numbered in Indiana based on how the last game just went. Um, you know, giving like every article of clothing away to the to the crowd. Um, 
was kind of comedic, but um, I don't really know a whole ton about Gabe York. I know that he played for the Mad Ants this year. I unfortunately have not gotten to watch much of the Mad Ants at all this year um, in, in full honesty, but um, he obviously got his deal converter to a two-way, which was cool for him. But um, And yeah, and Dwayne Washington had his, uh, had his deal converter as well, which was, again, nice to see. I'm interested to see what they – um how they view his developmental path you know like what they want to um do with him next year and moving forward but uh, regardless really really cool to see two guys who have been brighter spots for the Pacers this year get their uh and get some guaranteed money yeah I mean the thing with Kiefer is if we had done a podcast about like you know who stays who goes um I probably would have been interested in seeing more from Dwayne Washington if we're being yeah, honest he's definitely. obviously younger um has a little bit more to offer and has shown some upside in certain circumstances beyond just being a shooter where he can do um, even some things against some switches at times when he's, when he's not um, boxed into having to do like point Dwayne things as he was in a few games this season. Um, And with Kiefer, like, I think part of the calculus there too is, you know, TJ McConnell, I think, I guess is, is probably expected he's under contract to still be the backup point guard next season. And he came back and played against the Sixers. And I think probably intends on playing this weekend, maybe not in both since it's a back-to-back, but you know, when Kiefer was originally signed, it was a situation where Brad Wanamaker really wasn't working out. They needed somebody who could at least in theory, pull up and hit some threes and also keep the offense flowing to a certain degree which I think Kiefer did to the best of his ability. I think that he was probably at times a little bit too gun shy and defensively. I give him a lot of credit because not that he's the same caliber of player, but it was similar to when you watch Kemba Walker play with the Charlotte Hornets, there was ways to exploit Kemba Walker or with Boston as well because of what his size is. But you know, he fought tooth and nail, he gave effort. And there were lots of times where you could see like, Ooh, this is going to be a rough matchup for Kiefer, but, um, really pressured the ball was willing to do that 94 feet and really fought to avoid mismatches on the defensive end, even though the Pacers overall defense wasn't good. So um, definitely kudos to him that he, he played in the NBA this year and earned some starts and can look back and have those moments that he had like in the overtime against the golden state warriors. And if we're being honest, um, the period where the COVID Pacers where Dwayne and Kiefer were starting was some of the more enjoyable games of the season, at least for me personally to watch, um, especially with how the season started, as strange as that may all sound. So um, I'm with you. I'm excited to see what else we can see moving forward from Terry and Dwayne. I think that they've shown enough this season to, to consider them as um, young players to continue taking a chance on and seeing what else they can do. The terms and conditions of those contracts weren't released. I would guess their minimum deals. And while, Woj, I did believe, said that they're multi-year. I, w- I would highly doubt that they're fully guaranteed. So, um, But the one thing that you know, we, you and I have talked about this off air is we don't know who's coming back for the Pacers, but those are two people with contracts for next year now. So um, we can probably count them among the people who are at least likely to come back. Yeah, exactly. Um, is there any other piece of information we need to hit on? I think that's all of the important news other than I didn't get your thoughts on TJ McConnell coming back and playing against the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, I'll be honest. I haven't fully watched the game yet. I saw parts of it. Um, oh, I just meant your thoughts about him coming back. Oh yeah. No, I just meant left. that. Um, I, uh, I was surprised. Uh, I think I get it on one hand. Like, I, I mean, he, his quote was like, you know, I just want to come back and play this year and like show that I can do it. And, 
um, get my legs under me. And I appreciate that. I totally understand that from the aspect of being a professional athlete and wanting to, to get out there and just do your job and, and be yourself again after not getting to do it for most of the year. Um, it just, it was, uh, it just makes it so weird that miles didn't play. Is, is that fair? I don't know. I mean, I think fair. that the calculus there must've been that, and I, I don't want to sound this like I'm downplaying TJ, but it's kind of funny when you look and see like last night who the Oklahoma City Thunder are willing to play against the Utah Jazz, but they're not willing to play against other opponents. Mm-hmm. Some of the thought process must have been like, well, TJ wants to come back and get reps, but against an opponent like the Philadelphia 76ers, he's not going to push us over the top in that setting. Like, and maybe some of the thoughts were between Miles. I mean, Miles had a different injury as well. Like it was yeah, no, and I, I, and I don't know what the status like Right, right, right. Yeah, right. No, I don't I didn't take it that way. But like, you know, if Miles comes back, maybe he does help you win some of those games. I don't know. I'm not even saying that the Pacers are outright tanking. I think that they have tried to win some of these games in the way that they've gone about it. But I'm with you. I actually found it somewhat refreshing because I must admit that between watching the Pacers, watching, you know, that game against the Pistons and how the Pistons pulled all their guys with eight minutes to go, watching the ridiculousness of what went on at the end of that Thunder Blazers game the other night, like I have developed a distaste for having to sit and watch games and wondering which opponent is trying to win. So to have TJ McConnell be like, hey, you know, they've told me it's safe. And like, I'm not at all trying to, I have no idea, like, I don't want Miles Turner to come back and risk hurting his foot or TJ Warren to do that. I don't know what their statuses were, but for TJ McConnell to be like, Hey, the training staff has told me it's safe to play. I feel good and healthy to play. And I want to play. It was, it was, it was, it was somewhat, like I said, it was somewhat refreshing. And I, I'm glad when the season is over because I don't like how much I felt on the back of my head, having to question, like even before the trade deadline happened, like, well, is that guy being showcased at the beginning of this game? Because that's an opponent who's been mentioned as a potential trade suitor for that guy. Or, you know, why is this happening? Or did the Pacers actually want to win that game against the Pistons? Were the Pistons trying to lose that game? Like, I just want to be able to watch games and just evaluate the game. So for the sense that I could just watch TJ McConnell come back out and he just wanted to be able to get reps and he clearly loves the game of basketball and wanted to play, like, I don't really feel the need to ask the question why. Because if they didn't think it was at risk of re-injuring himself and he wanted to be able to come out there and establish some early chemistry with some of his teammates and get that off his back heading into next year, good for him. Yeah. No, I'm I'm in, I'm in lockstep with you on that. So I do think that covers all of our Pacers-related topics. I will want to say that if anybody's still listening to this at this point, that thank you to Craig for sending in the topic for this week. Um, two Pacer games left on the schedule. Mark and I do have some stuff planned for the offseason in terms of player reviews and draft content that we're going to try to start cranking out once this is over, probably depending a little bit on how the Pacers handle exit interviews and other stuff. But if you have topics that you want to hear us talk about, we're recording this podcast for you guys. Like we would much rather talk about things that you want to hear us talk about yes. because otherwise, like we can just not talk and have it recorded. I can send more messages if we just want to hear ourselves talk and talk about what we want to talk about. So um, thank you for sending that in. Yes, definitely. Thank you, Craig. And I always appreciate your support, man. And everyone listening, I completely agree with Caitlin. We always want to hear your feedback and, and know what you think of the pod and, and what we're doing. Cause again, we don't just do this to, have an echo chamber, regardless of what some reviews may say from this time last year. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you for, uh, for, you know, 
tuning into the show and uh, always riding with us. Have a good rest of your day and uh, thank you for listening.